PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the CrickCast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Crick offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Crick. Hello, this is Becky Crick, Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy, and I am delighted to welcome you to the April issue of the journal. This month, we have 11 articles, including two really interesting case reports. We're going to begin by looking at the first paper, which is a randomized control trial by a group from Taiwan. This is a different type of trial. It's a demonstration of concept, RCT, which means that the sample size is relatively small. The other really interesting thing about this paper is I believe that it's the first randomized control trial published in our journal by occupational therapists. So welcome. The topic is about constraint-induced therapy, either with or without trunk restraint, to improve outcome in persons after stroke. This is not the traditional constraint-induced therapy. In this case, they call it a small d for distributed constraint-induced therapy, and it was given for two hours per day five days per week for three weeks for a total of 30 hours. This little d, distributed constraint-induced therapy, was compared to trunk restraint. And then the third group, which received traditional physical therapy, including neurodevelopmental techniques. So I really do encourage you to read this article and see what happened. The next article is an article by Louise Wiles and colleagues from the University of South Australia. This paper is a bibliometric analysis of research publications from 1945 through 2010. As you may recall from the January editorial, the first PT journal, which was called PT Review, was published in 1921. And this first issue contains 16 pages. Most of the pages describe the directory of members. So I enjoyed reading this bibliometric analysis because it talks about research publications over a period of 65 years. What is really exciting to me as the editor-in-chief is to see the growth in the scholarship. In 1945, the typical paper was anecdotal, was authored by, on average, one American author who was working in a hospital and consisted of four pages with four references. In 2010, the typical paper used a cross-sectional survey or a randomized control trial, rather than being anecdotal, had approximately five multinational authors, consisted of 12 pages, which is our restriction, not the author's restriction, and had 49 references. So I'm really excited about the direction that we're moving, and I cannot even begin to predict where we're going. I'm not sure there'll be a paper journal. I'm not sure of the venue, but I know that we'll be sharing research with our colleagues in the future. The third research report is entitled The Use of Quality Indicators in Physical Therapist Practice, an Observational Study. This study was performed by Dr. Diane Jetty and Dr. Dion Jewell. Please tune in for the podcast that will discuss the results of this paper. The next paper by Antoinette Sander and colleagues from Northwestern University talks about factors that affect decisions to engage in exercise or physical activity in persons who are survivors of breast cancer. 
The results are very interesting. Three prominent themes emerged from the interviews, and those were the value and beliefs about exercise, the facilitators and barriers that occurred to exercise, and the lack of accurate information about the safety of exercise. So I think that this paper is extremely thoughtful and encourage you to look at it because the role of physical therapists is really important in making sure that survivors of breast cancer understand that exercise does not contribute to additional lymphedema and that it is safe and effective. The next study is about the use of vibration in children with or without myelomeningocele, or some of you might say myelomeningocele. Sandra Savedra from the School of Kinesiology, University of Michigan, and her colleagues presented this work. And the authors are interested in investigating the role of vibration in inducing motor responses during locomotion. So I recall Rude, when I was in PT school, I learned about the Margaret Rude techniques of vibration. This study calls back that concept but uses vibration during movement. So I think you'll find this paper very interesting. The next paper examines facilitators and barriers to physical activity in retirement communities in older women. And what's really interesting about this paper by authors who are from Iceland is that it's a qualitative paper. Ten persons were interviewed, ranging in age from 72 to 97 years of age. Now, again, we understand that there's increased emphasis on getting older individuals to exercise to maintain health and wellness, and it looked as though the residents really had an influence on these 10 individuals' outcomes. And so I encourage you to look at this study to see how the physical activity culture within a retirement community can affect activity in older individuals. The next paper looks at shoulder position in persons with anterior shoulder instability. The authors are Yuju Hung and Warren Darling. The purpose of this paper was to examine not only passive position sense, which has been previously reported, but also to look at active position sense in individuals with and without anterior shoulder instability. The authors report that there was no difference in active positioning tasks in persons with anterior shoulder instability compared to those who had an intact shoulder. I encourage you to recognize this is a very small study. There were only 10 people with shoulder instability and 15 people with healthy shoulders. So that's the limitation of the study. But I think you'll find it interesting. The next study is entitled Development of a Movement Quality Measurement Tool for Children. The study has been performed by physical therapists and physicians in the Netherlands. I'm really excited about this tool because it is looking at movement quality. So thank you, authors, for developing this tool, and I look forward to seeing how it fares in the clinical setting. I'm now going to turn to the two case reports that I told you that I thought were really exciting. The first case report talks about functional recovery in a patient with anorexia nervosa, and it's by Beth Ann Fisher and Margaret Shankman at the University of Colorado. It is really a thoughtful case report. This is a patient who was seen in the acute care hospital setting, The woman is 48 years old, but in order to come up with a rationale to treat this patient, they went into the frail elder literature because she had major organ problems. There was concern about her osteoporotic bones. 
There was concern about the density of her muscle. It was possible that she also had brain involvement. So to develop an intervention that would help her improve in independent activities of daily living, but not overly tax her system and burn essential calories in someone that you're trying to put weight back on is a really important question. So please, please read this paper. I think it really demonstrates how physical therapists faced with a brand new case gather evidence using a sound rationale, do a careful examination, and come up with a really, really good intervention. The next paper is about functional training following chronic facial paralysis. It's done by a group from India. I also found this case report very interesting. This is about a 25-year-old person who has a chronic unilateral facial paralysis as a result of a post-operative complication. When she comes to see the physical therapist, her personal concerns are that She has inappropriate facial expressions during conversations. She doesn't demonstrate enough emotion in her face, and her face deviates to one side. She can't close her eye completely, and she has slurring of speech, especially when she's excited about a particular topic. The physical therapist came up with a very sound rationale for providing an intervention that included cognitive therapy, so there was patient education involved, as well as functional training. For example, to help the patient facilitate spontaneous and voluntary expression of emotions in the right context, they had her watch television and movies and humorous videos and narrate stories during treatment sessions, play games such as peekaboo or blowing bubbles with children. So I hope that I've enticed you to read this case report. When I look at these two case reports, what really stands out to me is the emphasis on functional training, and the successful use of outcome tools. So I thank both of these groups of authors for submitting these case reports to the journal. The final paper is a perspective by Patricia Manns and colleagues from the University of Alberta in Canada. This paper talks about the non-exercise part of the activity continuum. That's a big part of the title. And what that means is, as we all know, there's increased emphasis on exercise. These authors stand back for a little bit and say, what about just not being sedentary? Is there a benefit to just moving more than you did previously? And they particularly ask those questions with regard to patients with mobility disabilities. In closing, this issue reflects such outstanding work. The papers in this issue really demonstrate documentation of effectiveness of current interventions, proposed novel interventions for the future, and application of knowledge to different patient populations. So I hope you find this issue as intriguing as I did. Have a great month. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craik, email ptj at apta.org and be sure to include CraigCast in the subject line. This is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net.